fellow music nerds, welcome to Season 2 of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a Canadian guitarist, songwriter, producer, and engineer, and I've been living and working here in Nashville for the last four years. A couple of years back, I decided to reach out to some of the amazing musicians, engineers, and producers I've met along the way to learn some of their more in-depth stories than what I'd been hearing elsewhere. So between March and August of this year, I'll be releasing a new conversation every Wednesday with someone who I feel has been involved with creating great recorded music. Feel free to reach out to me or leave comments at www.stevedawson.ca and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for free on iTunes. Now, let's get down to another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Howdy, folks, and welcome to Music Makers and Soul Shakers today. Today, I am bringing you my conversation with one of my personal favorite bass players, Mr. Mike Bubb. Mike has been a a fixture here on the Nashville scene for a lot of years now, and I came to know of him really as a fan of of bluegrass music when I was growing up and starting to play music, uh, particularly through the recordings of Del McCurry and the Steve Earle album The Mountain. And um, Mike was on uh, that record and also played on a bunch of Del McCurry albums and toured with him for years, one of the great, great bluegrass outfits of all time, really. Um, so yeah, Mike was in that band for several years and, and was part of the whole thing when they hooked up with Steve Earle kind of famously for a world tour and recording that what's become a classic album. It's very cool. Actually, if you don't know that record, you need to check it out. It's a, it's basically a bluegrass record, but it's recorded like a hard rock record. It's really aggressive and punchy and loud and raucous and man, does it ever sound great? It's aged really well. It's I don't know, 15 years old now or something. Anyway, go check that out, Steve Earle, The Mountain, and features Mike Bubb, of course. I've come to know Mike over the last few years uh, since I moved to Nashville, and he's been a go-to guy for me whenever I need a great upright bass player here in town, which actually is quite often. He really has the rare ability to completely own a groove and lay down a bass line that's a perfect blend of drive and tone, note selection and length, all the elements that make playing with and recording acoustic music a real joy. And when you have somebody like that laying it down, it sure makes things easy and enjoyable. Uh, Mike started off playing the banjo and moved over to bass when he moved to Nashville. And he became enthralled with the playing of uh, somebody who lived here, a guy named Roy Husky Jr., who was really everybody's favorite bass player back then in Nashville until his untimely passing in the late 90s. I think it was 97 or 98 that he passed away. Anyway, Roy Husky was sort of the definitive acoustic bass player and um, has an incredible discography. You got to check that guy out too. Mike and I got a chance to talk quite a bit about Roy and his influence. Um, Anyway, Mike left the Del McCurry band uh, a number of years ago and has become one of the top call bassists around town playing with all kinds of people from Tim O'Brien and Dirks Bentley, Rhiannon Giddens and Loretta Lynn. He gets to play on all kinds of great sessions like that. And he's lately also been touring with Ashley Monroe, who's a great younger artist who's been helping to bring uh, country music back around to reality. 
Uh, so yeah, thanks to her and thanks to Mike for playing with her. That's all very cool. He's also uh, a bucket full of knowledge about bluegrass and the Nashville recording music scene and also the Grand Ole Opry. And he's a great guy to hang out with. He's great to have around at a session and he's a killer storyteller. Um, anyway, Mike dropped by the hen house here to tell us some of his story, how he got into what he does so well and about some of the great sessions that he's been involved with. Oh yeah, and then uh, also Mike was nice enough to bring his bass along, which was cool. So at the end of our conversation, he grabs the bass, grabs it, picks it right up off the ground, and then I grabbed a guitar, and we have a little ripper up at the end. So there's that. Uh, oh, and you can also catch Mike around town if you're ever in Nashville. He has a weekly gig. I think he, I think it's still happening. I haven't been to it for a little while, but it's killer. It's at the Station Inn on Monday nights. Um, it's him and a bunch of his pals, Aubrey Haney's on fiddle, and uh, Doug Jernigan, the great steel player, is on is on pedal steel. So make sure you go to see that if you're around Nashville. I believe it's every Monday at the Station Inn. And again, I'd like to thank you all for tuning in. And as always, you can connect with me and the show at stevedawson.ca. Make some comments there and say hello. And if you feel so inclined to contribute with a donation of any sort, that is how we keep things afloat over here. Um, you can do that at the website. Uh, each episode has its own little page and there's a donate button on it. So go ahead and check that out if you feel so inclined. And please head over to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast there. It's free and that helps get the word out there through iTunes as well. All right, now I'd like to tell you about today's sponsor, Union Tube and Transistor from Vancouver, Canada. They're known for guitar pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that are as at home in the studio as they are on stage. I gotta say, I use these pedals all the time in the studio and live. I've got their Moore pedal and a Sone Bender pedal, and they both get tons of mileage on sessions and gigs. Great tones and the best fuzz effects going too. Check them out at www.uniontone.com. And now, without further ado, here is my conversation with Mike of I'm going on my 28th year here in Nashville. I came in 89. Uh-huh. And I came here with a bluegrass band. Of course, I was about 24 years old at the time, and that's kind of a... Seems like a median age. A lot of people come here, you know, right. young people come. Yeah. Either they come to school or they, they come here with the, with the purpose of playing music, you know. Yeah. And and that that has happened since the 1940s, you know, right. I mean, or 30s maybe. Yeah. But maybe the 40s and 50s. You know, this has always been a migration point for people seriously dedicated to playing music. And maybe at one time it was more country-oriented, but now it just seems like the music is so spread out and broad. Yeah, you know different kinds of music, but I came here with a bluegrass band, and um, at the time I was really playing more banjo. Uh, that was what was my main first instrument, mm-hmm. and but I had been playing bass in the band. And then our banjo player left the band before he moved here. His name is Ron Block. He plays with uh, Allison Krauss. Allison Krauss, yeah. And uh, so he kind of left before we moved here, but um, I went back to the banjo. We were using different bass players and this and that. But for some reason, when I got to town. Uh, I got more work playing bass hmm. and uh, started playing more bass right off the bat for some mm-hmm. reason. Mm-hmm. And um, of course, at that time, it was a little different, uh, uh, just sort of personnel-wise in town. There wasn't a lot of upright bass players. Really? There was, um, well, there was a lot of them, but 
Was electric bass more of a thing in bluegrass at that point? Uh, well, through the 80s, electric bass kind of made, uh, was, was sort of the, the sound, I think, right. because of bands like Hot Rise and, yeah. and uh, Newgrass Revival. And, and even and, guys like Doc Watson were using electric bass in and that Doc, too. And Doc, and even uh, Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver, his first band that oh, really? he started was electric bass oriented. Oh, okay. yeah. And a lot of that was born out of what J.D. Crow did, I think, oh. um, and a band called Boone Creek, which was uh, yeah, Jerry, and Jerry Douglas and Ricky, Ricky Skaggs. Skaggs. And uh, the bass player was Steve Bryant. Steve played with J.D. Crow, and then he jumped into uh, Boone Creek. Now, Steve's background was always in R&B music. Oh, okay. And uh, he lives here in Nashville. He's a great, great guy. Yeah. And um, I always tell him, I said, you're the guy that ruined electric bass playing and bluegrass music. <laughs> and I always say it as a joke because really he changed the way people think about electric bass in that in our type of music, in this bluegrass type music, because... How was, like, technically, what do you mean by that? Well, he came from an R&B situation. You know, he played yeah. funk and R&B. So his approach to the instrument was very melodic, yeah. you know. And so to this day, that is like the gold standard. Like you listen to those Boone Creek records and you listen to the bass lines that he plays. Uh, everybody to this day copies him and whether plays know, his stuff. Whether and they know when, it or not. When they play the electric bass. Okay. Because he really, really took it to another place. You know? Right. I just can't sleep when I lay down I'm feeling so blue I don't know what to do Because I'm head over heels in love with you uh, Another guy from Hot Rise, Nick Forster. You know, he's a tremendous guitar player. Yeah. And uh, so... It really opened opened up the bass to what he did, you know, yeah. different type of sounds and stuff. But he was really trying to sound more like an upright player because they were a fairly traditional bluegrass band trying to play traditional bluegrass festivals. Yeah. And even in that time, in the 80s, you know, everybody was just like, you know, they don't have no drums and they don't have no electric bass <laughs> in it, you know. But they learned to adapt and learn how to make it work. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so that was, you know, when I came to town, um, you know, I didn't really know. I, I came from out west and I was sort of a contemporary bluegrass guy. And I didn't really have a lot of the roots down. I didn't know a lot of the history. And you okay. get an education real quick when you come here about yeah. where this town came from and what made this town. And right. you start listening to those classic records. And, yeah. and uh, so I was very fortunate to get to know and play with uh, Roy Husky Jr., Right, and at the time he was he was the guy. He was if there was a session, the first call went to Roy every time. If there was a sub at the Opry, the first call went to Roy Huston. And he was only upright, right? Or did he? Play uh, he electric? plays electric. He played electric as well, uh -huh. and was very good at it. But uh, but mostly known was... for his just booming acoustic upright bass. Yeah, tell me about. So what what was it about him? Because I, I like I never well, got first a chance of all, to see him. Well, he was a but... complete natural. Uh -huh. You know, he was. Uh, complete natural and instinctive type musician where he never forgot a tune like he just had a like a photographic memory for music okay. so if he ever played anything he could just play it from then on it was right. never a, an issue yeah um of course he got it naturally from his dad yeah. junior husky who came to nashville to play with the leuven brothers 
and ended up being one of the top session players in Nashville. Was he touring with the Luthans? Um, he probably did a little bit of touring, but mostly I think he just played the Opry and played yeah. in, on sessions. And okay. Are you walking daily by the Savior's side? Are you washing the blood of the Lamb? Do you rest each moment in the crucified? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood and the soul? Cleansing blood of the Lamb. Are you gonna spot this ugly white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? The other main player on the upright, probably the, the he's known as the most recorded bass player in Nashville, that's Bob Moore. Right. And the thing is, he started when he was like 17 years old in this town. Right. In the late 40s. Yeah. And he couldn't do it all, you know? So there's a lot of other bass players that sort of came up in that era, like Joe Zinkin and um, Lightning Chance. Lightning and, Chance, yeah. And uh, several others that, that, uh, that sort of filled out the great recording bass players of Nashville. Some yeah. of them worked a road a little bit, and some mostly did studio work, but... Uh, what was Bob Moore's deal? Like, was he around at that time when you got into town, and was he like a... He was, player? but he was pretty much retired, even oh, really? even back then. I think he okay. played a little bit. I mean, he did some sessions here and there, but yeah. he really made his mark uh, in the 50s, 50s and 60s, 60s, and 70s. Yeah. Um, I was talking to his wife just the other night. I was just hanging out with him just the other night and uh, at, a, at a picking party and birthday party, and... Um, yeah. His wife met him uh, at the Palomino Club. He was touring with Jerry Lee Lewis in the late 70s. Awesome. And he was playing electric. And I don't know if he was doing it because he just wanted to or because of the music or that the session work was drying up or what. Maybe maybe a combination of all those yep. things. But uh, he was doing more touring, you know. Uh-huh. But he's the guy who played in all the orchestras. Like, you watch the Johnny Cash TV shows. That or, was him on that? Or... Um, uh, he was embedded in a lot of the orchestras. Okay. So like a Sunday morning coming down, that's Bob playing the bass on that. Yeah. And it's a live television recording of the orchestra and Johnny Cash singing that song. Okay. And um, and it's just, you know, his sound is just so obvious and in there. Feel alone. And there's nothing sure to die in. That's half as lonesome as the sound Of the sleeping city sidewalk And Sunday morning coming down In the park I And Junior and Roy Husky are both, to me, very identifiable in the same way. And Junior, uh, Roy Junior had the same quality to his playing. It's just like... So good and so uh, his timing and his, yeah. his choice of notes is just his ability. You yeah. know, it was just incredible. So he, I got to know him and be around him, and 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 then of course around '96 or '7, I guess he's when he passed away. And he died when he was like 40 or something. Yeah, right? both his dad and he both died, and right at 40 years old in that was area, he, 40, so. 41. Was he? Are you kind of the same age as him? Or uh, no, he's older than me. He was. Okay. I'm 52 now. Oh, okay. So. Um, um, and he so, had a few years on me. Was he kind of a, a, a mentor to you in some way? Like, did you? Yeah, from a distance, and, you know. Uh, right, Roy was an interesting character. You know, he's very, very humble guy. Yeah, and kind of goofy in a way. You know, quirky guy. Uh-huh. Um, 
but most geniuses are, you know, they're just, uh, he's an interesting cat. He, um, I worked with Benny Martin, who's another just sort of Nashville legend who really turned the world upside down when he played with Flatt and Scruggs. And then he went on to become a star of the Grand Ole Opry and a famous country singer on his own. And then through the years, he was, you know, best known for his great fiddle playing. And he worked with John Hartford a lot and, yeah. you know, fronted his own shows and stuff and worked with Don Reno and mm-hmm. did all kinds of things. You know. away it was was sick you know um benny martin said you know who am i going to get to play bass on my record because benny really is the guy that helped roy get his first job at the opry with del wood and sort mm-hmm. of made him his driver when he was when he, oh, i really? guess when when roy's dad died he was when junior passed away roy was about 16 15 uh-huh. or 16 years old and so uh, benny was the one that got him to come out yeah. you know out of his grief and help him, you know, really? played music with him and drove him around. That's why Roy always drove big Cadillacs because that's what, that's what <laughs> Benny Martin always drove. And nice. Roy used to have a, had a, uh, a, a, you know, a yard full of these old broke down Cadillacs. Just yeah. to, he had a bunch of them, you know. So was Roy mostly doing sessions then? Like he Roy seems to play on primarily just sessions. And then, um, uh, did a few other touring things. He, he, um, he was with Emmy Lou Harris's Nash Ramblers. Right. And, uh, of course, that concert that they did at the Ryman, which was a Grammy award-winning album and a concert video was sort of the initial uh, germ that, that started the renovation of the Ryman. Right. And um, it's a great, great album. And to hear Roy play on it is just, it's, it's, you you were at that show, were you? I was not at any of those shows. They did two nights there. So, so what do you hear when you, like when you listen to a record like that, like a guy like Roy Husky in his prime, like just, nailing it what what do you hear as a bass player that's exceptional well tone taste and timing to start with those three things you know roy had a sound and got a sound out of that instrument that um nobody else could his particular instrument Opry one time, back when they had the uh, Opryland Amusement Park, which was... Uh, uh, which was there until the 90s, right? Yeah, until they tore it down and built a mall, basically. Right. Yeah. Well, the Grand Ole Opry used to have these matinee shows during the daytime, because okay. it was so hot in the summertime that they would get people in the air conditioning for a while. Yeah. And it was sort of a uh, sort of a abbreviated Grand Ole Opry. So there was okay. an announcer, and there was maybe four acts that would play 15 minutes each. It was like an hour... Yeah. Or 90 minute show. Okay. And uh, so I was just there. My roommate played with Osborne Brothers for 12 or 15 years. And uh, so I would always ride with him over there and hang out, what have you. Yeah. 
And I was over there one one Tuesday or Thursday for a matinee, just watching the show. And uh, Roy was in the uh, in the house band that day, just filling in for Billy Lineman, who was the regular bass player. Mm-hmm. And the bass player for the Osborne Brothers uh, apparently either got the wrong time or <laughs> couldn't make it. Something happened. Yeah. And this was pretty before everybody had a cell phone, and yeah. you know so nobody knows what's happening. You right. know, he's just not here. So Sonny Osborne says, he says, go out there and ask Junior if he can play bass with us and use his bass. <laughs> and uh, he just called Roy Junior, like Junior Husky. Right. Anyway, I went to ask Roy. I said, Roy, I said, I don't know if Terry Smith's going to make it. I said, Do you, would you mind if I played your bass with the Osborne brothers? Well, of course not. Of course you can. Not a problem, you know. So I get a hold of his bass, you know, and it's just like... the Unplayable? Know, it's just... Virtually unplayable for me, for what I'm used to. You know, string, setup, sound, and plugged into this giant Ampeg amp. And I was scared to death on top of that, you know. And it was just awful. It was just awful. And uh, I remember coming off the stage and Sonny Osborne saying, that's the worst the Osborne brothers have ever sounded on the Grand Ole Opry. Seriously? Oh, my God. And I couldn't help but feel a little responsible for that. But I was just so nervous and and just out of your out of my zone. element comfort yeah. zone you know and i thought God, that you just had roy play what was i thinking you know but at the time you know of course you want you you know you don't want to say no to anything you know yeah, of course yeah i'm gonna jump in there you know do the best i can yeah and luckily it wasn't on the radio or anything right. like that and it probably wasn't as bad as it might have might have sounded or felt you know uh-huh. but uh Anyway, you know, his, his style and his playing was... Was that kind of a thing for him, was playing through a giant amp peg? Well, always at the opera, you play through an amp. You know? Oh, okay. Big sound. Yeah. Big bass sound. Right. And uh, the guy that was the house bass player for years at the opera, Billy Lineman, um, fantastic upright bass guy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he just had a huge sound. He used to tell me, he's like, he said, I can get behind these, these new country guys and... Play the upright. He said, they always turn around and go, well, I didn't know you could play like that on an upright or sound like that on an upright. You know, they're expecting an electric bass and he's back there just yeah. thumping on a yeah. big old beat up upright bass, you know, and it's yeah. incredible sound, you know, it's just, yeah. a, and it, it is a sound, you know, it's like a really um, something I've always tried to strive for, you know, uh-huh. I don't always, I've never really achieved it, but I remember one night I gave him a set of strings at the station in, I had some gut strings that I, I, I thought, well, I'll never use these. I'm just going to give them to Roy, you know, and, I said, Roy, I got these gut strings. And I said, I said, you know, I probably won't use them because I use the steel strings. And and I said, I want you to have them and maybe you can use them. And he was just so appreciative. He really? was just like... Was he a gut string player? Yeah, he used gut strings on okay. his bass. Yeah. And um, uh, I, playing bluegrass, I always use steel strings on my bass because they stay in tune uh-huh. and they have more volume, consistency. Right. It's okay. just more consistent as yeah. a string. Yeah. And... Um, and I tried to emulate his sound the best I could through the steel strings. It'll never quite be the same. Yeah. Um, but um, in the band that I eventually wound up in, which is the Del McCurry band, after our little band broke up here in Nashville, you know, we started on several micro, you know, separate microphones, and then reduced down to a couple microphones. And okay. So after a certain point, I didn't even mic the bass. I was just coming through the microphones like everybody else. And yeah. So yeah. I really needed that punch and volume. Right. Right. That I couldn't get with a gut string, which because they're a little quieter, the tone is different. Yeah, um, a little less. Yeah, a little rounder sounding. Yeah, and yeah. it's it's a nice it's a nice sound, but it doesn't project like a steel string does. Yeah. What and, about in the studio? Do you just because um, your well, steel have, strings are on your bass? Or it's funny you should ask. I have a bass. It's exactly like Roy Husky's. I have an really? uh, like a night. 
1950s American Standard with gut strings on it. Uh-huh. And I record with that in the studio sometimes. Okay. Um, I, sometimes I'll take two basses with me, yeah. uh, depending upon what people want. Um, and was his action outrageous or anything like that? Outrageously high. It yes. was, yeah. Yeah. And is that how yours is set up? Uh, no. It's playable. <laughs> Mine's for a little bit easier to play. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Where Where is his bass now? Do you know? His son has it. His okay. son has it. JT Husky. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he was in a band. I mean, he might still be in a band called the Howling Brothers. Oh, okay. And... Um, so it's three generations been knocking on that base. Oh, man. I was, I was driving down R.D. Boulevard one time, or R.D. Street, R.D. Road, I don't know what it is, over to East Nashville. Uh-huh. That's the house, that's the street that Roy grew up on. That was his mom and dad's house. And then he lived there and raised his kids there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I pull up at the stop sign. It's about two houses away from, uh, from Roy's house. And I've got my window down. This is in the middle of the summer. And I hear a bass, like... <laughs> I go, wow, what is that? You know, as I pull down the street and I look over up at Roy's house, I see JT up there wearing out the bass, you know, slapping away, like practicing up there. And I thought, man, what a Nashville moment. Like the third generation on the instrument in the house where it all started. He still lives in the, in the Husky house. I think they've they've since sold it and moved on and out of there. But, uh, that's cool, man. But it was just one of those, you know, it was, it was a neat moment that, you know, only, only I can appreciate, I guess, you know, but <laughs> you and three others on the planet. Right. You know, but I just thought it was just so cool. You know, it's like, yeah. that's the instrument, that's the house. And wow. that's where three generations of bass players have, you know, yeah. learned how to do it, you yeah. know, and, and made it happen. So anyway, you know, Roy was just a natural, uh-huh. I know that he played in bands where he just never even looked at a chart, you know, he just, he just knew it. He did the session, he knew the song and mm-hmm. that was it. And he yeah, just man. had a, an incredible sense of, um, or an intuitive sense about mm-hmm. music and just the way that he interpreted music as through colors and you yeah. know if you ever read anything about him but he always he said the uh, music was in colors every note had a color to it mm-hmm. right before he passed away he told john harford he said uh he goes i know the color of the note of gabriel's horn wow and john said what is it he goes it's black Holy shit. And he says, what note is it? He goes, B flat. <laughs> he goes, what's the whitest note? He goes, E flat. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. And uh, at his funeral, John Harford gave him just an amazing eulogy of, really? of Roy. Yeah, it was just incredible. I have a copy of it somewhere. It's oh, written wow. down, and it was just really beautiful yeah. and insightful. Yeah. You know? What about Hartford? Did you ever get a? Did you ever play? Yeah, I got him? to be around John quite a bit and played some shows with him and recorded with him a little bit here and there. Uh-huh. Uh, he's another guy that was just so full of music, you know. Yeah. Um, I think he probably recorded every jam session he was ever in. He always had a little tape recorder and a little microphone he'd set really? up, and <clears throat> and uh, he was uh, tireless when it came to playing music and jamming. Like he would just he would play until. Till there was nobody left standing. Right. He would be the last man standing every time. Yeah, yeah. And such a creative guy, you know. He was just constantly writing ideas and, yeah. and tunes down. He had he used to wear like two or three vests because he needed the pockets. And each vest would have two pockets, and all those pockets and those vests would have these little three-by-five cards oh, yeah. that he was always making notes on. He would either write in notation of tunes... Danny Barnes was telling me about or ideas yeah. or song lyrics or uh, uh, just whatever came to mind, you yeah. know. Or he'd write things down, you know, quotes, right. things that happened, his historical things to remember. Or he would sketch, 
he was a great sketch artist and really? he wrote he, he he made these great um sketches of people like earl scruggs and benny martin really and uh, one, one time i was at his house and uh where did he live? He was. He, he was lived right on the Cumberland River in right. Madison. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Real close to um, uh, Wayne Moss's place, which is uh, Cinderella Studio, which is mm-hmm. a classic yep. spot over there. Um, uh, Wayne Moss is the guy that played guitar on uh, Pretty Woman okay. and a bunch of other sessions and stuff. Yeah. But he was part of a band called uh, um, Area Code 615, which right. was sort of a studio super instrumental supergroup yep. band, you know. Made some records, but he did a lot of country sessions and stuff over his place. Anyway, um, that's where John was, right on the river. So there's actually a um, a uh, navigational beacon right at his place. Uh, it's called Hartford Point. Hartford there's Point. a turn in the river where um, it's it's on all the river navigation maps and stuff. Yeah. And the you know the towboats would come by. They all knew his house. They would shine their light up in his house and stuff. Yeah. And um, amazing guy. His house one time, and he had this big trap door in his living room in the floor. And I just remember always noticing that when I was there. And I said, I asked him one. I said, John, what's down there? What's 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 this trap door? Where's it go? He goes, You want to see where it goes? I said, I'd love to. What's down there? And so he goes, Well, let's open it. You know. So we opened this big trap door, and there's a stairway that goes down underneath his house. Yeah. And down in there was basically the foundation of the house, which is these big, huge rocks yeah. that overlooked the river. And he had it all uh, glassed in and, and um, really? walled in. So it was like a little hideaway down there. Yeah. And down there was this like little desk, uh, some kind of little piece of furniture down there that had all of these drawings on it and just like paper, papers that he just really? sort of left down there randomly, you know. Yeah. And they were just fantastic drawings, you know. And he would and go down there? I guess to... he used to go down there, maybe smoke some weed and write songs and get creative, got to get away from the chaos. Well, since right. said he smokes an old eyeball cigar, says he doesn't miss it at all. But he still goes out and he makes a few trips in the summer and then in the fall. All the railroad trains, the bus and the planes are taking up all the slack. He been a-watching all those river towns slowly turn their back. He's just a feller, worked on the river all his life by a paddle wheel. You say he's old-fashioned, well that ain't no big deal. Well, it's too thick to navigate and it's too thin to plow. So let him go on, mama. He used to have these epic um, end-of-the-year jam sessions around Christmas time. Uh-huh. And they went on for days. Really? Like it was like a three-day party at John Hartford's. <laughs> and he invited everybody. And unfortunately, I never got to go to any of them because it kind of ended not long after I came yeah. to town yeah. before I was sort of privy to it okay. and, uh, yeah. and, and part of the part of the, the in the, the no, scene. knowing yeah. crowd that right. would go there. You know? Yeah. So anyway, I remember being there and I look on this music stand. There's this calendar of... Uh, like vintage mahogany speed boats and wooden boats, you know. Yeah. And I said to him, I said, now that's a hell of a boat right there. And he goes, you're goddamn right it is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he just took so many things like that so seriously, you know. Yeah. It's just like he just had a real passion, you yeah. know. And uh, another guy that was just very artistic and quirky and interesting, you know. Mm-hmm. And he was out on that on that uh, down from the mountain tour. He as didn't well, do right? the tour. Oh, he didn't. Uh, oh, okay. He did the concert, which right. sort of spawned the tour. What, what what happened with that movie was the um, the concert was before the movie came out, right? Yeah, they made a concert. They 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 performed a concert of the soundtrack artists at the Ryman. Yeah, 
and it was filmed by Robert Muggy, who's a famous filmmaker, famous for making the Bob Dylan documentary. Yeah. You know, my perception is that the movie, being a Coen Brothers movie, is, you know, they're always a little cryptic. They're hard to understand. Like, the more you watch it, the yeah. more you watch a brother where art thou, the more you pick up things and you see things you didn't notice the last time and right. how it's all sort of stitched together and connected. And uh, anyway, so they made the concert and recorded it as a film, and then it went on PBS, which, you know, PBS... All, all before the movie came up. Well, during the... While the movie was released, yeah. actually, I think. Okay. And uh, John was part of that. Yeah. And the... Uh, it went on PBS, which means it goes into every home in America for free. Every, it doesn't matter if you have cable, right? Uh, an antenna, or whatever, it's going to be on Channel 8 yeah. or your PBS station, and you don't have to have a subscription to see it, so... To, and it was right at 9/11, right after 9/11, I think, when this thing okay. came out. So there was a great bit of nostalgia happening in the country, and, yeah. and sort of it was a perfect storm of it circumstances. Was a perfect storm, and you know, when the when the movie came out, I think it's kind of struggled. And then 9/11 happens, then this concert comes out on television, and uh, everybody sort of reconnects reconnects with the past you right. know through that music and and it drove people to the movie the movie yeah. drove people to the music and the music drove people to the movie and it became this unbelievably hugely successful it was crazy nobody saw it coming yeah uh soundtrack yeah over 12 or 14 million copies sold. Sugar, don't stop gonna bring a bottle to the bay don't you weep pretty baby don't you weep pretty don't you weep, pretty babe? Don't you weep, pretty babe? She's long gone with the red shoes on. Gonna need another loving babe. Go to sleep, little babe. Go to sleep, little babe. Go to sleep. And were you were you in the concert with the? We Del were not band? in the concert uh, okay. at the time when they made the soundtrack or started the soundtrack. Uh, we, I was with Del McCurry, and we were on tour with Steve Earle. Right. And we had like a two-month tour with Steve Earle, or yeah. a month long. When we got back uh, off that tour was when they were having sort of this, uh, for lack of a better term, cattle call to the studio yeah. of all these different artists. Now, supposedly, the Coen brothers had a big list of music that they wanted to include in this movie, mm -hmm. all kinds of songs. And Gillian Welch was sort of the... Um, person that pulled all the talent together for T-Bone Burnett mm -hmm. yeah. and they sort of ran everybody through the studio with these different song ideas let people pick songs and let people yeah. or sign songs to different artists and they wanted Dell to come down there and do it but Dell had this terrible back problem like he couldn't stand up straight after this 30 days on the road with Steve Earle. He could barely get on off <laughs> the bus. That'll do it, I guess. Yeah. And he's like, I would love to come down there. He said, but I can't. I can't stand up. I can't do it right now. You know? Oh, shit. And so we missed this little window oh, man. of being a part of it. Right. And then after the success of the movie and the soundtrack and yeah. the concert on PBS, they devised a winter concert tour right. where they went and played um, a couple of weeks on the road with the, this sort of package show yeah. of the artist's and uh, and we went out and played. We filled in for somebody that wasn't wasn't on it. We went out and did two of the shows. That's it. You just did a couple shows. We just did two on the winter tour. Okay. And um, got to know some of the people. You know, yeah. some of the primary people behind it and everything. And yeah. And then, um, 
So, after I, so that, I, I guess Hartford was dead by then, right? Because he uh, he died right after that concert. The the concert yeah, at he the died Ryman, in two thousand one. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it was hugely successful. The summer tour was six weeks long, and you and did that whole thing coast to coast. Yeah. 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 We were out for six weeks. Wow. That's and heavy. Uh, it was it was a lot of fun. Yeah. You know, it was just so much fun to be out there and. You know, you know, when you get out there and you got that many people, some crazy shit's going to happen, you know? Yeah, man. And uh, so we had a lot of fun. Uh-huh. And, uh, Any highlights from that from that tour that come to uh, mind? You know, just some of the venues were nice. I mean, we played like at the Greek Theater in L.A. And, yeah. and the Coen Brothers were there. And it was really? just a, a big Hollywood night because some of the actors came and yeah. got to meet some of them. And, you know, it, it And people just, must have been freaking out, too, because that record was so huge. Yeah. Well, all the shows were hugely successful. I mean, yeah. we in Canada we played at the uh, in the winter tour we did uh, in Detroit there at the uh, Canadians Hockey Arena. Oh, really? Okay. And they just curtained half of it off. Oh, in Montreal or Montreal, yeah. yeah. And they curtained half of it off. Yeah. And it was like four tiers of <laughs> seating in this. It's a oh, half of an shit. arena, basically. Yeah. And. To see some old time music. Yeah, get up there and play in front of microphones, you know, to these people. And they just ate it up. They loved it, you know. Yeah. The guy who was sort of the musical director and chief cat herder and sort of in charge of the whole thing was a guy named Bob Newworth, who's a real Oh, character. my God. Yeah, okay. And, I, uh, I, I actually want to get him on this show, too. He's been here to Nashville. There's a yeah. great interview with him from the Country Music Hall of Fame that he okay. did last year. Yeah. And, so what uh, was so he was just kind of like there being a ringleader like he did with the Rolling yes, Thunder. Yes, he was you. there to maintain integrity of this thing. <laughs> awesome. It was very important. Uh, the integrity of the music and the production was very important to both him and T Bone. So, and was was T Bone there or no? T Bone came to a few shows. He came to. Uh, so he brought on Bob Newworth to yes. have that role. Yeah, and he, was he an active? Because Bob Newworth is a guy that put together the Rolling Thunder review. So this was something that. Came natural to him, yeah. you know, like and was how to, he, how was to he get all of these there, divergent like, personalities together, and how would, to keep the focus on how we're presenting this. It was really right. they really wanted the presentation to be as accurate and acoustic as possible, right? Uh, and how did that translate to huge venues like the the well, acoustic we had, microphone thing? Well, we just had the finest sound people there are, right. and we had uh, um, it was never a problem. No, and and. Uh, there were some in-ear monitors. I remember using an in-ear monitor. That would have been early days really, for that. You know, we didn't use monitors when I was with Dell. Right. There's no no monitor you, at When all. you play in a big, huge place like that, you just feel like you're out in a, you know on an island somewhere. Right. So I just used one ear in-ear so that I could kind of keep keep in. You know, being behind yeah. everybody as a yeah, bass player. Yeah, it's hard, man. Um, you know, and you're hearing yourself come back. Right. You know, <laughs> three four milliseconds later, and it's just yeah. it could be a real mess. Yeah. But um, so one year was your solution for that. Yeah. Okay. And uh, just to try to be in sync with everybody. Yeah. And uh, but the sound was. Uh, and w- sound. Were you individually mic'd for that yeah. tour? Okay. So you well, had, we, you had your we own just mic. We played or? on a couple microphones. We were already okay. playing on just one microphone, but I think we used two at the time. Okay. And uh, they had a great crew of guys, and we used Southeast Sound, which is from out of uh, uh, North Carolina. They do all of Allison Krauss's tours and stuff. Okay. You know. So they're top notch. Yeah, and they understand the. It was all Allison's people, basically, yeah. that did the production. Yeah. But I remember a couple of funny things happening. Like when we played the, uh, when we played the Greek Theater in L.A., T-Bone was there. Uh-huh. And, of course, Ricky, uh, Ricky's band was very um, um, 
production oriented. And so his lead guitar player played through a direct box. Like was he it was Brian was, Sutton? Uh, no, I think it was Cody Kilby. Okay. So he was plugged in. Yeah. He might have had a volume pedal. Okay. And that went away that night. Really? He didn't want to see that. Yeah. You know, that was... that who, was Who put his foot down? Was T-bone. that a T-bone? Just yeah. like, get that thing off stage. And I don't know if it was a big <laughs> dramatic thing. It was just like, you know, we, we, we can't have that. That's not, that's not the purpose of this tour. Yeah. Uh, they didn't want to hear anybody say dot com on anything. They don't want you know. Right. It's not what it's about. Right. It's not about marketing yourself. It's yeah. not about your website. It's not about uh, that sort of thing. It's about the music and as a whole, uh-huh. um, and seeing seeing it all in, under one roof. Yeah. And done. That's a hard as thing primitively to as do. Possible. Like to wrangle that many people and get them to buy into that concept—that's a tricky yes, thing to do. Absolutely, especially absolutely. people that are at that level where it's it's not just people that are fucking around or like right. semi or or like new artists. These right. are like and everybody's used to different production right strategies. You know, yeah, yeah. It wasn't a big deal for us in the Del McCurry band because we just we played on a couple of microphones. That's right. what we did. We were used to it. You yeah. know, other bands that you know have a lot of monitor and a lot of you know in ear monitor systems and mixing and all that kind of stuff and kind of rely on that, um, you know, it was a little bit more difficult for them, yeah. you know, I think, or they had to adapt. Right. And, but in the end it was hugely successful. Yeah. And what, did they ever try and do it again? No. Well, it, you know, it's just, uh, six weeks is a long time to get a lot of people like that together. Yeah, and I've had to get to a certain point that everybody wants to go back out and do their own yeah. thing. Especially if you're playing four songs. Uh, this, this happened to us with the, with the Steve Earle tours are very much the same kind of thing where, when we made this record with Steve Earle, and we went out and played the tour, yeah, um, we, you know, Steve really came to our side of things, and he wanted to present it that way mm-hmm. because that was the purpose of making this record. Is he wrote the record to record it with the Del McCurry band, and so he wanted to assimilate himself into our thing. thing. Yeah, he went out and bought a bunch of suits, and really? uh, he he had his sound guy devise a system to mic the show we played on one center microphone and then wow. he made this little stereo microphone that went down on the mic stand sort of waist level for the yeah. instruments okay and that's how we presented the show wow and um might have plugged the bass in just to give a little more oomph because yeah. there was a lot of movement on stage but uh when there were six people up there but that's the way he wanted to do it you know how did that come about in the first place? So um, obviously you'd been playing with Dell for a few years at that point, or were you kind of? Yeah, I was with Dell. I, I joined Dell in '92, okay. and uh, this was probably around '99. I hooked up with Steve. Right. And, so it was uh, so it was him coming to you guys saying, "I've got." Well, this what idea. happened was uh, there was a there's a magazine called No Depression Magazine. Yeah. And at the time, it was uh, I don't know if it's the same now as it was then, but it was a print magazine then, and sort of it went away, and now it's the, back to print. Actually. Yeah, and it was online for a while, yeah. and and I think it's maybe the same primary people that still run the yeah, totally. run the show. But anyway, I think they were based here in Nashville at the time, and it was sort of the Americana yeah. music magazine. Yeah, all kinds of roots music in there, and. Uh, so they sponsored uh, one night a month at Station Inn called No Depression Night, and they okay. would bring two artists together oh, okay, yeah. to, to play separately and together on right. the show. And they pulled the Del McCurry Band yeah. and um, uh, Steve Earle together. <clears throat> now, Steve had just not too long previous to that come back to town from uh, jail? His jail and <laughs> addictions yeah. and what have you. Yeah. 
And uh, he, the first tour that he did was a was a thing called Train of Coming, which was Peter Rowan yep. and Norman Blake and Roy Husky. Right. And um, it's a fantastic record. Yeah, if you can my find friend, it. my friend Holger put that out, and because uh, nobody would touch it in the states. But oh, he, really? But Holger up in Canada was like, I will put that record. Yeah, out. it's a great album, and <laughs> yeah, it has some. It's killer. It has yeah. some incredible songs on there, like Ben McCulloch, which is a Civil War. Yeah, it's a great Civil War song. Fell back to the Boston mountains in the north of Arkansas. Goddamn you, man, my color. Hate you more than any other man alive. Hey, and when you die, you'll be a foot soldier just like me. In the devil's infantry. Steve said, he said, I'm telling you right now that that album, Rubber Soul, is the Beatles' attempt to make a country album. <laughs> and he's right. If you listen to it and you just put it through a country filter, yeah, I uh, like Nowhere that. Man would have made a great George Jones song. Totally. You know, he's a real nowhere man. You know, it'd just be awesome <laughs> that George Jones sing that song. I think you should do that. Well, I'm actually <laughs> copping that from Hot Rise. They did it with the Red Knuckles bit, you know. Oh, really? And, George Jones uh, did. And uh, Red Knuckles okay. used to sing it. Yeah. And they recorded it that way, actually. But but when you hear that, you go, yeah, he's right. It is. A, it's very country, very Buck Owens-ish, you know. Yeah. And um, so, obviously, what they were listening to. Anyway, that record came out for Steve. and So that was like acoustic record. Then he started making his electric records, put his band back together. Yeah, he had those pretty, pretty hard-hitting rock records. Right yeah, and he was too. producing a band called the V-Roys at the yeah. time, which uh, was out of, they were out of Knoxville. Another great songwriter. Um, mm -hmm. I can't remember his name now. It's right on the tip of my tongue. Anyway, he used us on a couple of sessions. and The, the Del McCurry band. Yeah, yeah. and... Um, and I don't know if it was after we played at the Station Inn with him or it was sort of all around the same time. But anyway, we did the show at Station Inn with him. And, and was that kind of like lightning strikes? It was good? in a way because what we yeah. did was we got with Steve. Was they Dell and Steve had a relationship that went back a little farther. When I first joined Dell's band in 92, the album that was out just previous to my joining um, had a song on it that was written by Steve. And when oh, they were okay. in the studio... Uh, it, they deemed it too short, and uh -huh. so Ken Irwin contacted Steve, wherever he was. I don't know if he was in a halfway house or mm -hmm. where he was, but a rehab facility or something. And he said, "We need another can, verse. Can, can you get us another verse?" And he faxed <laughs> another verse to the to the studio, <laughs> and they cut the song. Now I don't think they'd ever met prior to that. Okay. But anyway, so Steve got, came back, and he was just like sober, clean, and. Writing voraciously, right. his, his creative output was just massive. Massive. He yeah. was writing like crazy, making records, and and so anyway, we got thrown into this situation at Station Inn for No Depression Night, and so we learned a bunch of songs from uh, from uh, the Train of Coming album. Okay, and um, and we played them. Yeah, them. yeah. And he just loved it. He thought it was the greatest thing ever. And he told us after the show, he says, I'm going to write a bluegrass album and I want you guys to record it with it, with me. And mm -hmm. we're going to do it, you know. And of course, Dell's like, yeah, that's great, Steve. Love to, you know. And of course, we didn't think anything of it, you know. You hear something like that, you think, yeah, okay, we'll see you in a couple of years or next year or whatever. Three days later. Man, within six months, we were in the studio making this record wow. that he had written the entire record that summer. Like, he was just like a man on a mission to yeah. write this album. 
And all those songs were specifically written for that format. Yeah, for that album. And it came together relatively easily and quickly, like in a, in a way, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, there was a lot of stuff that happened in the process. At the time, Dell just had an agent; he didn't have a manager. You know, oh, okay. so there was no really. But you guys were busy, right? Like you were playing all the time. Yeah, you know, right around that same time is when Jerry Garcia passed away. Not not too long before that, and yeah. so we had started feeling a real difference in the audience and the type of people that were showing up at oh, our shows. Yeah, and being. Uh, just sort of present at this type of music, a lot of deadheads sort of came over into bluegrass and got part of, became yeah. part of the scene. Yeah. Um, and, and I Del, don't know why Del that definitely is, had that. why I would mention Jerry Garcia, but it, it was just that event that... I get it, yeah. People sort of, came, you know, broaden out their musical sensibilities, I guess. Yeah. So when we made the record with Steve, you know, we never made a record like that before. There was no reverb on that record. It was all compressed like a rock album. I know, That's I wanted to ask you and about that. It, we stood in a line in uh -huh. front of him. This, did you do it at Ray Kennedy's place? We did it at Ray Kennedy's, which at the time he was on Music Row. And okay. I think he and Steve sort of shared the studio space yeah. there. Because they were producing as and a he team. Was, uh, yeah, he was, Ray was his main guy. Yeah. And, uh, of course, I had seen Ray play previous to that when he had his own artist deal and stuff. And, and uh, But we'd never made a record like that before. You know, bluegrass is a finesse type of music. It's... It yeah. has a lot of detail to it when it's done right. And yeah. and um, with Steve, he didn't want to do any overdubs. He wanted yeah. all live performance. Yeah. And like I said, there was no reverb, so there's no softening of the edges of this thing. Right. It is like shoving a six-piece band through a garden hose. Yeah. You know? And, so they, would, and the, they would play these playbacks, and they would just crank it in the studio to like 110 <laughs> dB. And we're just like, we, we, it, it was painful, you know, in a way. Cause, yeah. Um, we never experienced anything like that before. Yeah, and the sounds are super aggressive. It is like a rock album. Yeah. So when, like, were you hearing that in headphones in the studio because they were processing that as it went down? Yeah, obviously. not really. Like, it didn't really feel that way in the headphones. Like, so you were just it, in kind the of, end when we when we got the final mastered album. Yeah. Um, it was more, even more compressed than right. it was in the studio. Okay. Know? And. Um, there's a lot of bleed over in that record because we're all in the room together and it's all live. Yeah. You know, he wanted to make it as old school as possible. Yeah. Um, the only difference would be reverb, but we never made a record like that before. So we really learned a lot in that sense of, of how of else the, was it different know, sense of how we were and what, what he was and, and how we could bring these two things together and sort of get used to it. You know? Yeah. Typically, we, you know, if something's out of tune or, you know, you'd want to go back and just kind of tighten it up a little bit. Yeah. We didn't have that. We just didn't have that. Uh, he's more of the Dylan mentality of like, yeah, feels good, man. Let's go. Let's right. move on. Well, he's a big picture guy. Right. Mother wept. Her many good boy died. they sure and air smell just like death. I am Corrine of the 20th Maine and I march to hell and back Joshua Chamberlain, we all going down the Dixie. Oh! 
So were you, were you doing just like minimal takes of every song as well? or what? I, don't, I don't know if we did minimal takes. And they may have ed- edited some takes together. Right, I don't really right. know about the process later because I wasn't yeah. there for the mix or anything. Uh-huh. But I do know that we were in the studio for about a week solid making the record. Okay. Steve was very generous the way he paid us. You uh-huh. know, we got like double scale for it. Nice. And I never made any kind of money like that making a record, yeah. you know. So all of a sudden, I was, you know, got to liking it and enjoying it real well because, you know, it's like, you know, traveling in a family bluegrass band, you know, we, we were like the leanest operation out there. Right. You know, we, we traveled in a, in a bus that Dell owned and drove himself. And, really? And we never got hotel rooms if we were in the bus. Yeah. We had our own, we had a shower in there and our yeah. bunks. And, right. And, uh, you know, we'd sleep on the side of the road or at a festival or, yep. or, or we'd be driving all night right. to the next one, depending upon what it was. A very, very lean operation. Yeah. And, um, and that's a bluegrass way of life. It's a, it's a bluegrass lifestyle. It's, yeah, a, man. it's a lifestyle choice. Yeah. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, we're getting some luxurious things happening. Like yeah. we're getting paid very well to make this record. Um, how did the how did that affect your um, draw in concert? Like it must have been well. A what huge happened? Jump, the fir- right? the first gig that we played with Steve was Farm Aid in Chicago. Oh, shit! And we get <laughs> to Farm like Aid and eighty thousand like, people or something. Yeah, it was like unbelievable. We played early in the day. It may not have been that many people there. Yeah. One of the interesting things that happened there. Well, a couple of interesting things happened while we were there. Because all of a sudden now we're we're in this place where we're like, you know, how do we get here? We're, right. You know, we're parked next to Neil Young and right. Willie Nelson's hanging out over here. And we look out the window of the bus at one point, and there's the four guys in the band Fish hanging right. out. Yeah. And they're pointing at the bus, going, "That's Dell's bus," you know. <laughs> so of course Ronnie immediately goes out and just introduces himself to these guys. Yeah. And that's how we met the band Fish, uh-huh. and they had been playing a little bit of bluegrass in their show yeah. for a while in that time period. Yeah. And they were one of the sh- songs that they did was a Del McCurry song. Really? So and they were so they wanted to meet Del, you sure. know. Yeah. And I, I wasn't too hip to their music, but but got up to speed real quick after I met them and kind of learned who they were and what yeah. they did. And um, that started a relationship that continues for them to this day. Yeah. And uh, we played one of their bigger festivals a couple years later in Oswego, New York. We played in front of 70,000 people with them. With you know, Fish. On stage with them, yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, but what really happened was, um, you know, Steve uh, was, is bigger than just being a songwriter and a singer. You know, Steve is an activist. He's politically motivated in a lot of different directions. And, yeah. and we never experienced anything like that. I right. don't think Dell had ever been around much like that. You yeah, know? no like kidding. Thing Coming is, from his background, it must have just Dell's been Dell's like... the kind of guy, he doesn't judge an audience at all. He yeah. just wants to perform for them and sure. does what he does. He respects the audience, yeah. and he never leaves them out of his show, whereas some artists might not want to play somewhere because of an audience. Yeah. He's not that way. Right. He's, he's just, he does what he does, and it's very honest. And I think an audience generally knows that and picks up on it. That's why he's yeah. able to assimilate himself into jam band festivals and these kind of things totally. where they don't want them to dress down. They don't want the band to be in jeans and a t-shirt. They, no, want, they want to wear the, the suits and do their thing experience. because yeah. that's what they want. That's yeah. that they want the real thing. Yeah. And they know that they're going to deliver that. Right. You know, so when we started with Steve, he was really involved with, uh, he had had a song in a movie called Dead Man Walking, yeah, which was the story of a guy being, um, Sean Penn and, all that yeah it, it, um uh, he, he was actually right. a pen pal with this guy who was actually um um uh 
died of legal uh, injection mm-hmm. in uh, prison. And he might have even been there at the thing at, oh, really? when it happened. Yeah. Anyway, so he was involved with the victims of murders, fa- victims of murder families against the death penalty. Wow. So in and out of what we were doing, he was going out and driving vans for these people and sleeping in churches and just part of this movement of trying to be, you know, send this awareness around. So I'll back up a little bit back to Farm Aid. So at Farm Aid, uh, we're backstage in this big like warehouse pavilion type thing behind the stage. Now, Farm Aid is all country and rock bands. Yeah, We're the only bluegrass acoustic band there is. So, of course, we can just get the instruments out and start playing. Right. So, so we do this. We're, we're backstage, <laughs> and we're jamming. We're just playing. And all of a sudden, this huge crowd of people gathers around us, all these musicians and artists from these different acts that are there that day at Farm Aid. And Paul Schaefer was there. <laughs> And he's right in the middle of all of this. And he is just like loving it, you know. And so I remember Steve's manager at the time was there and he says to Paul, he says, hey, I want you to remember this. He says, because when this record comes out, we're going to need your help to get on the Letterman show. Yeah. And he goes, you got it, man. This is fantastic, (laughs) you know. And it was just really fun. It was like a show within the show. You know, we, we played a bunch backstage and yeah. just kind of got to meet some really cool people. You know? Farm Aid's just a one-day, one-off thing, right? Yeah, yeah. but it's huge. You right. know, it's, it's all day and all night, yeah. and it's, uh, you know, the biggest names. Yeah. And um, so anyway, we were thrust into that, and that was really cool. And then going forward, uh, we did a couple of little small shows. We did a, a TV show called Sessions on West 54th, which mm-hmm. is... Uh, in New York. Sort of, a, yeah. And uh, it's at the old Columbia studio oh, cool. in, in New York. And it was a TV show, much like Austin City Limits. Right. Uh, they would do live performances. Yeah. So I remember going there and the guy, the production guy saying, okay, so tell me about this one mic thing. How's this going to work? How are we supposed to shoot this? And I said, well, look, essentially everything's going to happen around this one microphone. doesn't matter if you use a camera over here, camera on the left, camera in the center, camera below. I said, it's all going to come there. to you right here. Yeah. So you can, cut, you can cover it from any angle. Right. I said, very simple on your part. It doesn't need to be blocked or anything because yeah. it's all right here in front of this microphone. Yeah. So again, that's another uh, PBS show. I believe it was on PBS. Okay. It might have been a, some other network show, but I think it was PBS. And again, it goes out to every home in America. Live. Well, not live, taped. Okay. And uh, but it was funny because we were there and we were done like real quick. Yeah. And, and you know they were taping two shows a day. Yeah. And there's all this crew, all of these union crew right. guys to move gear, move stuff around, and be. Yeah. And they didn't have to do anything with us. <laughs> and we didn't have any monitors. <laughs> right. We only had one microphone. Yeah. And but they had to stay because they yeah. were on the they were making thirty two an hour yeah, whatever man. you know they had to stay there. Yeah. And They'll wait, stay overtime if wait you it out you know. <laughs> Anyway, uh, we did that show, and that was a big boost for the oh, yeah? upcoming record and the tour because a lot of people really, really uh, saw that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then the tour starts, and the tour um, began, and we, we, would, we would open the show with the Del McCurry band, or with Steve, actually, mm-hmm. and then just the band with Steve, without Del. Oh, okay. And then Del, or Steve would introduce Del, and he would come out, and we would do our set, which yeah. was 45 minutes or whatever. And then there'd be an intermission. And then Steve would come back solo. Yeah. And he would do... Some of the hits. His hit songs and some of his, uh, you know, more politically oriented material. And then he, like I said before, he was on this um, sort of um, 
on his activism side, he was he was doing this uh, uh, um, death penalty right. thing, and so he always included that in part of the show. Uh-huh. And then after that, we would all come together and we would close out the show, and we'd do some of his bigger songs, and yeah. of course, close out with Copperhead Road, right. and. and um, but it was like a three and a half hour show. It Holy was an shit. incredible show. It yeah. was a lot of music. And Iris Dement came out and sang with us really? a couple times on different tour nice. nights because we did a song that she sang on on the record, which is just a fantastic oh, yeah, right. country, She's country on song. Yeah. Right so far. walk off the stage and he said god damn i love my job (laughs) jesus so powerfully great yeah man uh so anyway you know this this show was three and a half hours long and and it was selling out everywhere it was just a huge event yeah you know like uh what kind of venues were you playing like big uh, we played big rock rock uh rock um theaters like the vic in chicago okay uh, we did Town Hall in New York City. We did substantially uh, bigger than what you were used to playing. Yeah, in like the re- real venues, you know, right. real sort of uh, uh, well-known yeah. uh, performing arts centers and that that type of thing. Yeah. What we noticed right off the bat was that we were getting both of our fans were coming to this thing. So mm-hmm. there was Del McCurry fans that yeah. were coming to see what this the hell is all about. On. What the hell is this all about? <laughs> Who is this guy, Steve Earle? Yeah. And then there's the Steve Earle fans. You know, we're used to rock. You know, Steve right. plays loud. Yeah. And his fans expect it to be loud. You know, he's a, he, he invented country. I mean, the, he invented new country rock, basically, yeah. you know. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, he's the one that really told us right off the bat. He said, look, there's going to be a lot of people that don't understand this, don't get it. That, you know, they're going to be wondering, why am I doing this? Why are you doing this with me? Yeah. He said, we can't worry about those people. Let's worry about the people that get it, that are inside the fence. Yeah. The people on the periphery, we, we can't cater to them. Right. We have to get the people that get it and understand what we're doing and how this collaboration is working. And, and he was right. You know, he had a real vision for that. He understood that mm-hmm. more so, I think, than, than we did, or at least Dell did. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really the first time in Dell's career that he got the kind of uh, negative fan mail Really, that he'd ever gotten like he never had gotten anything like that because Steve is a is a you know he's a pretty much a carefree guy on stage. He'll say, and, and does that have to do wants. with like some of the bluegrass crowd being like super hardcore about? Yeah, to, well, just to hear profanity on the stage, <laughs> right. uh, maybe his political motivations. You know, they're they, not prepared to hear that kind of stuff. You right. don't hear that at a bluegrass festival. Right. Okay, you know, you don't hear a guy introduce Roddy McCurry and say. This guy does have one of those wallets that says "bad motherfucker" on the back of it. You know, <laughs> you don't hear that. Right. And we we played at Merle Fest with Steve, and you know we were all taking bets as to how long it take him to say "fuck" on stage. Yeah. He said it right off the bat. It was pouring rain. He says, "Y'all a bunch of bad motherfuckers sitting out that rain. We appreciate you." You know. <laughs> so that rubbed you out the wrong edit. way too. Well, 
that was the beginning of maybe some of it. Oh, yeah. you know, we didn't have any monitors, so a lot of stuff that Steve said on stage when we were out there with him, that Dell was off to the side of the stage, he I didn't... don't think he could really hear it that <laughs> okay. much. You know, it's like just garbled <laughs> right. and not paying much attention. A lot of people think it was the profanity, but yeah. it really wasn't. What, what broke down more than anything was uh, just the whole part of, um, I think, what was Dell getting criticism from his fans, first of all, that was... A painful thing for him because huh. that's not his in his. You just can't fathom it. Well, I just I don't think he was used to it. Yeah. You know, he, he doesn't want to be criticized by being associated or collaborating with somebody like yeah. that. You know, and, yeah. and I get that. You yeah. know, he's very protective of what he does, and all of a sudden, absolutely, he's letting it go to a whole and letting somebody else kind of control that, and yeah. that's that's a very difficult thing, right, uh, for him. And he would never attach himself to a political ideology and use the stage to to promote that. That's not something that's in his uh, way of entertaining. Yeah. Now, that's not to say that doesn't happen in music and will always be a part of the music business, but that's just not his his thing. Yeah, you know? and it's not part of the bluegrass tradition. And it's not part of any kind of conservative, traditional bluegrass sort right. of vision, yeah. and for sure. We were having the time of our lives, you know. We were <laughs> making some cash, we were, playing some. We were making big good rooms. money. We were like yeah. rock stars and playing yeah. in front of these huge audiences. And they had the whole year plotted out: East Coast, Northeast, South, yeah. all that. And then we would go to Europe. Yeah. And then we would come back and we'd do the West Coast. Right. And um, so there was a couple of gigs peppered in there between the Europe and the East Coast tour. Yeah. And Dell had dates too. Okay, of his own. So we did this show here in Nashville that that uh, was just like a street festival, six-stage thing. Uh -huh. And uh, what happened was on those shows, uh, things got edited down from a three-and-a-half-hour show to a 60-minute show or yeah. a 45-minute set, which really was to feature the songs of the album. Yeah. You know, the right. album. We would go up and do the album. Mm -hmm. It didn't give anybody a chance to do anything solo. And right. I think that really bothered Dell. Like, if I'm going to come and do this, I want to be able to do promote my new my record thing. too. Yeah. You know? Because yeah. we had a record out that came out simultaneously. Oh, really? Okay. And uh, so, you know, part of this is to promote that record as well. Yeah. And so, when you edit the show down and it just comes down to this record, I think Dell maybe felt it was a little lopsided towards Steve and yeah. it didn't really give him uh, the same amount of exposure right. in, in the set yeah. musically. Yeah. And I kind of get that, you know. Yeah. Um, same thing happened at Merle Fest. And uh -huh. So there was this sort of tension that built off of that. Yeah. And I remember, <laughs> I remember the show in Nashville. Emmy Lou was there, and Steve asked Emmy Lou to get up and sing a song with uh -huh. him, you know, out of the audience, which was cool and great and everything. But and nobody's really thinking about it at the time. But I think that just that's one thing that le that left one more song out. For Dale to be able to do oh, okay. on his own, you know. Okay, yeah. And I think he noticed that, you know. Right, right. And um, so, did he end up canceling the last? Well, that the day after that concert, we had a little, we had a little snafu backstage, and uh, and Dell decided he wasn't going to do any more. That was it. He quit. Oh wow! And when I got, we were, we were flying out that same day to Kansas to do do a Del McCurry band thing yeah. at a bluegrass festival. Yeah. When I got to the airport, there was Dell and Steve's manager and Ronnie and. Gene, and they're trying to scotch tape this thing back together because, <laughs> you know, we're going to Europe. They've already bought the tickets, and the tickets are being sold at the concerts. And it's just, there's a lot at stake here. Yeah, a lot of time and, and money invested in, in, in yeah. we can't just you can't just Bail let it on. all go. Mm -hmm. And um, so, 
couple weeks went by. We, you know, we left there and came back, and then um, luckily they were able to sort of tape it all back together. Because okay. getting on Letterman is a big lick for us. It was yeah, like, man. You don't want to just toss that away. We might not get another opportunity. Yeah. And if we do this, then it may give us an opportunity to do it again because right. we have the ability to do it. Yeah. So cooler heads prevailed, uh-huh. and we got it worked out. They got it worked out. Okay. I'm not privy to any of this right. stuff. I'm just yeah, sort yeah. of the hired bass player, sort of <laughs> viewing from the from outside, you know, and looking at it all. And I can only really give you my perception from my experience. But uh, so anyway, we ended up we we're going to go to Europe, and and we'll we'll do that, and then uh, we'll do Letterman. And uh, I, I'm sure it all came with uh, stipulations and yeah. requirements, you know, yeah, and it yeah. was a negotiated thing. <laughs> and I just remember David Letterman holding up both albums, you know, our album and Steve's album. Very equally. And uh, saying both of them yeah. as he introduced the band. Yeah. And one of the interesting things was on that show was that uh, the audience, it, it turned out, and we didn't know this, until we got there, was it was an all Nashville show. So oh, really? the okay. audience was from Nashville, and they had this write-in campaign at the Tennessean where you could win a free trip to New York okay. and go to the David Letterman show. Yeah. And matter of fact, when we were getting there, coming back after soundcheck or whatever, I ran into Mike and Susan Drudge, who are <laughs> he's a booking agent here in town, yeah. and they had won a trip really? there. They were there in the audience. Uh, the... The top ten countdown was yeah. a, a Nashville quiz, and right. it was read by a it was read by a, a Predators player, really, a hockey, Nashville <laughs> hockey player. And they had a theme song, which was Nashville. They, they instead of Nashville Cats, it was Nashville Quiz. <laughs> now we didn't know all this was happening because you know when you do these TV shows, the band they're the first ones in and do do a sound check, yeah, and then you're and then done you're until it's time to tape, yeah. And then they run the rest of the stuff. So we, all the stuff's going on. We don't even know any no of this is happening. Okay. And um, so we had devised a medley. We were going to do a song featuring the Del McCurry band. Yeah. And then we would do a song with Steve. And we would put the two songs together. Okay. And uh, so, uh, of course, the band, the Letterman band, wasn't there when we did our sound check. So we did, we did the song Nashville Cats, which was on the record. And mm-hmm. it was kind of a big hit for us. Yeah. Um, and then... Uh, Steve had a song called Graveyard Shift, which is a real sort of bluegrassy, sort yeah. of boogie type song. And we were able to morph the two together into mm-hmm. a medley. So we did Nashville Cats, maybe a verse and a chorus of that. And then Steve steps in and started his song. Yeah. So when we start this song, you know, they had all kinds of stuff like uh, Biff, the guy who was the stage yeah. manager at Letterman. <laughs> yeah. uh, they had a, they rolled a film clip of him in Nashville on this going all over Nashville on a flatbed truck with BR549. <laughs> Giving him a tour of Nashville, <laughs> nice. that was part of it. And uh, well, that's awesome. I'm pretty sure Kelsey Grammer was the, one of the guests. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. He wasn't related to Nashville, but he was the guest on the show. Yeah. And uh, anyway, comes our performance, and uh, so we go into Nashville Cats, and the band can't believe that we're doing Nashville Cats. Like they had no idea. They had just adapted the song to Nashville ah, right. Quiz. And, okay. Yeah. You know, it was just really very cool. The whole thing went off great. Yeah. And it came off fantastic. Uh-huh. And we got it done. We got on Letterman. Yeah. You know, and that's a big, you know, for any band, that's just huge. a big, huge yeah, spot, you know. Yeah. And um, the exposure for the album was big. And then yeah. just, to, I think, a week or two later, we set out for Europe and we went all over Europe and flew all over mm-hmm. uh, Scandinavia and all over UK yeah. by bus. And then we went all over uh, Europe and in Holland and 
the, the result of that tour, ultimately, was that, and I, to this day, I still have people come up and say, that's the first time I ever saw Del McCurry. Changed my life. That concert changed yeah. my life forever. Yeah, I bet, man. And one of the greatest concerts I've ever been to, you know, because it was just so much music and so much depth of music and a variety of stuff, you know, that it really, it, it raised our hip factor a whole nother totally. level and, yeah. um, and kicked a lot of doors open for us. You yeah. Know? And looking back now, you know, you can see that, you know, we were at the very first Bonnaroo because of that, you know, they knew who we were and they, we were able to, we, we weren't even on the poster. We weren't even, we were like a late added act to Bonnaroo. Yeah. Cause I was sort of like in the, in rock bands touring around at that time too. And, and there was sort of a new appreciation for bluegrass largely, I would say because of your band and because of that collaboration and yeah. things like that. And obviously Oh Brother and all that yep. stuff kind of happened around Absolutely. the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that didn't really affect you guys at all, right? You just kept doing what you were doing. We like, just did what we did. We didn't yeah. adapt right. differently to it. We just yeah. we just presented what we did alongside yeah. those guys, and they loved it, and yeah, and uh, and the audience loved it too. So for you as a musician and sideman, like being involved in some of those big projects and the the elevated success of the Del McCurry situation, did you start getting more calls for like for your own? Well, at the Side time, work, or at we the just time I, did, so much? I didn't get a lot. I mean, I was right. getting some things here and there, yeah, uh, some prestigious sessions here and there, but yeah. really, I was just so busy. Yeah, I didn't have the time. Yeah, you know, and that's what happens when you're attached to a moving ship, right? You know, <laughs> as a member of a band, yeah, you pretty much your social life and your professional life is pretty much uh, circulates around that. Yeah, you know, so yeah. in that time, you know, we. We were all in our 20s, the mm-hmm. band. Mm-hmm. We all were in each other's weddings. We went through all these rites of passage together. Right. You know, we were in our weddings. Everybody was in each other's weddings yeah. around that time. Yeah. We all bought our first houses at the same time. From, yeah. And our, got our loans from the same lady who was a <laughs> fan of the music. Nice. Back when they were giving money away. <laughs> and, um, and then, uh, you know, we started our families together. So, but I crawl every inch of that ground. sort of happened in a five to eight year period yeah and you know you become a little micro community yeah and that's what what you do so that's around 2000 or something how long were you in the mccurry band i left in 2005 okay and uh, almost uh, 13 years to the weekend 13 years wow yeah that's a hell we did a lot i mean we did a lot of hard traveling a lot of whatever it it takes to get there we got to do it you know and and was it a decision of yours to just get off the road eventually? Yeah, it wasn't to get off the road. Um, I had just gotten into a, a place where um, it, it's easy when you're when you're somewhere that long. You know, all of a sudden you look back and you go, "Jesus, where where where'd the last ten years go?" <laughs> yeah. Well, you spent the last ten years looking out a window, basically right. in a van or a car, or a train, or an airplane. Yeah. yeah. You know, th- those are the things you forget about the time spent to get to and from where you got to go. Totally. 
you remember the show. You remember that 90-minute show at some place. You know, that was, a, that was a magical night. Yeah. What wasn't so magical was getting there. <laughs> the 19 hour. And you try to forget right. that. And, you know, all of a sudden you yeah. look back and you go, Jesus. It's a lot. Big the time that I spent yeah. sitting on my ass, you know, getting somewhere. Yeah. That's what drives um, me nuts, too, about, like, the idea of working in the studio here versus being out. Right. Sitting on a plane or a And all of a sudden you look and you go, wow, or, 10 years just went by. Yeah. What essentially happened for me was um, I had a little breakdown with uh, the management, mm-hmm. uh, and and that was over the future of the band, you oh, know. Yeah. And what happened was they were Dell wanted to establish his boys, mm-hmm. the band, us. Mm-hmm. You know, we were all kind of like family, really. Mm-hmm. Even though I'm, me and Jason were sort of hired hands, we weren't, you know, part Jason, of the, Jason was Jason the Carter, the fiddle player. Fiddle player, yeah. So, you know, we're just hired hands. We're not part of the family business, so to speak. But right. We're family, you yeah. know. And so part of what Dell wanted to do was slow down a little bit yeah. himself, uh-huh. enjoy a little bit more time for himself at home. He's been doing it since He's, early 1960s. He, he would know? have been in his 70s at that point? At this time, he was in his late 60s. Okay. And um, he... So so, so the, the idea was that we needed to to do something. We needed to come up with something to shore up the other side of the tour schedule. Right. And of course the manager, you know, he sort of had a vision for that and it was going to be in a certain direction, which is uh, more of the jam band scene. Cause uh-huh. something outside of the traditional bluegrass realm. Yeah. That'll always be there, but to, you need a new discovery. You need to discover new territory, mm-hmm. whether it's musical or whether it's audience wise. And so um, just sharing and understanding that vision, I think, was a difficult thing for me. Mm-hmm. And um, Was that a direction that you just weren't interested in? In some ways. Yeah. Um, I always felt like, you know, you know we're part, we, we're, we create the, the, the creative process. You know, we're going to decide artistically what it is what we want to do. Yeah. And you have to give a wide path to do that. Uh-huh. It doesn't happen overnight. Right. You know, magic, you don't just throw people in a room together and expect magic to happen. Yeah. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. But there's a period of experimentation and, and sort of discovery that you have to kind of figure out how to do this. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes people that don't play music or are not part of that creative process, they don't really understand that. They don't have the patience for it. Yeah. Um, they don't have the and so when they start to insert themselves in that you know sometimes it can get a little toxic uh-huh. and that's what happened for me and okay. i just i just kind of i didn't i didn't really appreciate the direction yeah. that he was pointing it in and yeah. Yeah. and take sort of taking that those creative and artistic decisions out of our realm so you know? was it a situation where they wanted the McCurry band minus Dell to be out doing a certain kind of thing that nobody was really that comfortable with. That- yeah, well, he wanted to add other instrumentation mm-hmm. and go a different diff- different direction musically. Yeah, and you know my thing was well, look, first of all, we're a blue ribbon bluegrass band, mm-hmm. and we have fans. Everybody's got fans in this band that follow us. I said, you ought to let us be a bluegrass band for starters. Yeah, we had made a record called uh, uh, Dell and the Boys. Mm-hmm. And I said, why don't we make a record called The Boys and Dell? I said, that's our album. Our album features us. It's a cool idea. And we'll collaborate with Dell, and he'll yeah. be a part of it, but we, it features the band. Right. It could be either 
half instrumental or it could yeah. be, you know, we write songs, whatever it is, whatever idea. the process is. Yeah. He wasn't too keen on that idea. Oh, he thought, man. you know, you think you're going to compete with the Del McCurry band? I said, well, we are the Del McCurry band. <laughs> Essentially, we are the Del yeah. McCurry band. It's, yeah. Essentially. With or without Dell, it's the Del McCurry. These are, these, this is yeah. Dell's band. Yeah. that wasn't really what he wanted to do he wanted to really step out and do something different musically mm -hmm. and and i get that but i i sort of felt we needed to start somewhere and, and starting somewhere meant putting together a, a body of material of music that we could go out and play whether it be plugged in or whether it be acoustic mm -hmm. and with or without dell we could do this with dell or we could get somebody else to take his place and go out and do it right and the vision for that just <laughs> wasn't, wasn't there, wasn't you know? Happen. Yeah. And the funny thing is, after I quit, you know, in 2005, it took him almost maybe, I don't know, I want to say five or six years to kind of come around to that concept. Right. And now, now they have the travel. Which is what they do. They do right. both that. They yeah. do that. They can go play a bluegrass festival yeah. now as a bluegrass band, or they can go and plug in and play with the jam bands, which they do. Yeah. And it just took a long time, you know? Mm -hmm. And at the very moment that I quit, you know, it was just, it was just a lot of tension and toxicity about when to make this happen. And this yeah, has to happen it. sooner than later and a lot of pressure. Yeah. And, um, and I just, I just, uh, Screw you know, it, man. I just didn't it. want to be a part of it at that point. Yeah. And, uh, it just got, to and you where, had your family and well, it got to be where it was just awkward and, yeah. and left footed. And I just, you know, I, I'm yeah. better off out of here. So, so at that time, did you have some other opportunities presenting themselves? I had none. Nothing. Okay, so that's, that's, that's freaky. You know, yeah. Here's a recommendation. Don't ever leave anything <laughs> without anywhere to go. And of uh, course, when I left, you know, I, I thought, well, I'll just hop over into another big touring bluegrass band. Is so that what you wanted? That's what I do. Okay, you know? yeah. And I thought, well, this is, you know, I'll just do something else. I'll just get with somebody else. Yeah. Right away, I realized right off the bat that, that's not as easy as it sounds, yeah. and that uh, that I I had played with the very best, and it's a tall order to replace yeah. that feeling and that sort of like I said earlier, you know, your social and your your professional life is so intertwined with these people, yeah, and the relationships that I had with them that have with them to this day um, is you know it was it was like being going through the worst breakup of my life, you know, and it took me months to get over it. And like the, just the pain of not being a part of that again anymore. Yeah. And, yeah. and that I had, I had taken, made this choice myself. Right. Second guessing yourself and, probably. And, and wondering uh, if you made you know, up. What am I going to do? How am I going to get through this? And, yeah. and I was trying to chase down gigs. Yeah. And, but the, those kind of gigs, you know, I was there for 13 years of uh, these other bands that are, really uh, at the top of the echelon, those guys hold on to those gigs because they're good and they're regular and they, yeah. they make a living doing it. Yeah. They don't just open up every day. Yeah. And so I just really realized right off the bat that I can't chase after anything. Yeah. 
I have to let what I've done and my professional reputation and everything that's a sort really of, hard thing to sort of stand on its own. Yeah, and and I'll just stand by and let the music come to me. Right. So I got a job. I went to work at Home Depot. Did he really? I worked there for almost two years. Yeah. And just played here in town. Yeah. And um, you know, kind of just waited it out. Yeah. And eventually, um, I started getting calls to play mm-hmm. and different people. What, what, do you th- what do you think happened that, do you think it was just timing or just people realized you were around for once? Part of that, you yeah. know, it's like, it takes a while for the word to get out. Yeah. You know, that, that you're, you're not part of this anymore. I mean, there's, right. I still have people that think I'm still in the Delma Curry, you know, <laughs> yeah. and it's been 10 years, 11 years now. Yeah. So it's crazy, but it's yeah. true. Uh, I had to get this time off. I was working part-time at Home Depot. Yeah. There's actually a place called Expo Design Center. It's a Walmart now up at Hundred Oaks, but, uh. They went out of business not long after I left there, but um, serves them right. Yeah, I predicted it. <laughs> anyway, you know, here I am caught up in this, you know, corporate. I'm a sales guy on the floor, but I mean, the, the corporate scene and the mentality of working in a place like that is just so different yeah. than being in a band and being a musician and being an <laughs> oh, artist shit. and all the yeah. things that you know, the freedoms that you have as you know. Um, you, you really start to do things like value your time, you yes, know, yes. and because so much of your time is, is spent That's, uncompensated. There's probably some important lessons to be learned there. As Unbelievable a musician, lessons, right? you yeah. know, and you know, you get your paycheck and you go, God, if I just had one session, I'd have made this much for what I've done here over the last two weeks. Right. You know, Yeah. now you don't, can't have that session every week. So it's nice to have something consistent, but. You know, you start to really value your time and yeah. you go, wow, this is really out of whack here. Yeah. You know, getting paid by the hour and spending hours here, I lost all this free time that I had to right. promote myself and music and do other things, you know? Yeah. Um, anyway, I wanted to get this week off and they said, we can't give you the week off. And I said, well, why not? And they said, because we just can't. Yeah. And we don't have to tell I said, you. I said, well, I'm part time. I said, what does it matter if I miss a couple of days of, of a week that right. I only work a couple of days a week? Right. And she says to me, well, you're part time, but you have to be have un, uh, you have to have uh, full availability. Ugh. And I said, well, that's not that's why I work part time is I don't have full availability. Yeah. And I said, what's the difference between if I don't show up or if I call in sick or if you give me the week off? She goes, well, if you don't show up, you could get fired. Yeah. You only have so many sick days. Yeah. And we simply can't give you the time off. Right. And I said, no. I said, the difference is there is no difference. (laughs) I said, if I am not here, I said, that front door is going to open whether I'm here or whether I'm not here. Yeah. I said, this company will open its doors and will be in business with or without me. Yeah. I said, it doesn't matter if I'm here or not. Yeah. Truthfully. Yeah. I said, you're talking Thankfully. about, you're really talking about giving me three or four <laughs> days off. That's how I was working. And she said, well, you just don't understand how corporations work. And I said, uh, I, just want to I said, well, I'm, be- I'm beginning to, and I said, I'm really <laughs> starting to understand it. And I'm realizing it's not for me. Yeah. And I said, you know, the reason I took this job was because there was flexibility when I totally. started. Now all of a sudden there isn't. Yeah. I said, so what you're telling me is that you've invested <laughs> all of this time and training in me as to one of your better employees. I've never had any issues. I bet. Yeah. I said, I'm a self-starter. I'm good with the people. I said, you know, the first person that anybody comes through those doors talks to is one of us. Yeah. 
down on the floor. Yeah. I said, they don't come to the manager. They come to the salesperson. Mm -hmm. I said, so what you're telling me is that it's more valuable for you to have a person here who knows nothing than it is to be flexible enough to say, Cut me some we don't want to lose this guy because we've got all this invested in him. Yeah. Uh, let's go ahead and do this and we'll work it out later. Yeah. I said, that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. All this kind of thing. Anyway, I ended up quitting that job. And you took, your, of, you took your week off. And I went and did the <laughs> thing in Wales and uh, all, everything worked out fine. Yeah. And, but after that, you know, I just kind of rededicated myself to playing music and, and, and things started happening. And so I yeah. started getting calls. People like Tim O'Brien, you know, started calling me yeah. to play gigs. And I was right. doing other sessions. Well, I mean, you know, for, for me, coming from Canada, like you're the one of the main names that I know of as a great acoustic bass player in Nashville, you know, because because of that. You right. know, that's, well, how I, that's how I know your name. And that's like, that's thousands of miles away. It's pretty cool that yeah. you're, you know, that you're... Well, you know, again... Uh, and even up there, there's people that like... When you're in Mike it, you Bubb is their, their idol in the same way that Roy Husky Jr. Yeah. or somebody it's was... It's good to have a name people can remember. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, uh, it's funny. It's just, uh, you, you don't realize it at the time. Yeah. You know, the value of, of the time that you put into something like that. Yeah. You know, and then I look back and I realize, okay, well, I got a Grammy with Del McCurry. We, yeah. we were there when he became a member of the Grand Ole Opry. Yeah. We were one of the most awarded bands of bluegrass at the, at the IBMA Awards. You know, I have a, uh, just boxes full of these awards. And at the time, you know, you think it's, it's sort of a casual thing, but you look back and you go, wow, we really did a lot of work. And we really yeah. worked hard and strived for, for Dell's brand to get him and right. we revered the guy. I yeah. mean, we revered Del McCurry. We all wanted the best for him. Like going forward from here, like you've been involved with that, with Ashley Monroe and her career a lot over the last year or two yeah, years. Yeah, I kind of joined her band sort of accidentally. Oh yeah. So how did that happen? <laughs> um, well, my buddy Guthrie Trapp, who's one of the top guitar guys here in town, yeah. Um, and so we put together sort of a trio band yeah. behind her guitar, yeah. and Guthrie played acoustic, electric, and mandolin Was with her. Guthrie on her records? No. Okay. Uh -uh. He just needed the musicians to go out and play yeah. with her. Yeah. So that was our first gig. We went to the Greek. We did sound check. Alan Jackson's band is there and everything. 30 minutes before doors, Alan Jackson cancels. What? <laughs> Holy shit. What was that all he about? He had like some kind of throat oh infection or something. Oh he couldn't God. sing. Was he doing the bluegrass thing at that point? Or no. What? No, this was his full country full show. Oh, my God. <laughs> so he cancels. And now, I don't know if you've ever been to the Greek Theater in Los Angeles, but it's up in Griffith Park, which is... You know, I have It's like a two-lane road that goes right. up there, and yeah. it's just the traffic, and it's just a mess, you yeah. know. He cancels. Oh, my so God. So we don't do the show. The next day, we're at a rodeo in Salinas, which is about three hours yeah. up the road from that, from Los Angeles. We get there, and of course, the band is there. And all, you've never even done a gig with her at this point? No. Uh -uh. <laughs> They're all set up and everything, and the tour manager is telling us that, you know, Alan's going to be there and he's going to do it. Yeah. And uh, we meet the promoter 
and the promoter says, I got on the phone with her, her, his manager and I said, look, I got one rodeo a year and it's this weekend. Yeah. I got 6,000 people coming to see Alan Jackson. Yeah. I got a guy who paid $100,000 sponsorship to have him here. Holy shit. And he's bringing a bunch of people. I said, I don't care if that guy croaks for 20 minutes. He has to be on my stage tonight. <laughs> you got to have him here. Just put him up there. Just get him up there. So yeah. that gig happened. And Alan shows up. Yeah. And In rough shape, or was he all right? He, right off the bat, he sang like two songs. And he goes, yeah. I want to tell you all. He said, I, I canceled last night at the Greek Theater in Los Angeles because I'm I'm sick. I've got some throat issues. He says, I'm going to do the best I can for you tonight. Yeah. But uh, he said, don't expect, uh, you know, don't expect much out of me. So I'm going to just do the best I can for yeah. you. Yeah. And man, when you do that, you have the audience sure. right in the palm of your hand. Yeah, they love it. And he it, proceeded right? to sing for 75 minutes, one hit after another. Really? Awesome. And it was great. <laughs> yep. I mean, it was just, he endeared himself to that audience yeah. right off the bat. Yeah. And they had sympathy for him and they just wanted to hear those songs and sure. see him do it, you know. Yeah. And so that was a successful day that playing that gig. And and were you playing into mics and stuff, or were you like plugged uh, in? No, we were the... we were plugged in. Yeah, okay. you know you have to be plugged in to play in a big right. stage or whatever. So we started getting gigs. You know, we played on the Tonight Show with Jay Leno, which yeah, was a man. thrill. Yeah. Before that went away, and and um, and then we got on some tours, and and uh, we opened for this kid Hunter Hayes on a big tour. Uh-huh. And we just we were just an opening opening act. We would go out and play yeah. a twenty five minute set. Yeah, you know that's like six, seven, eight songs. Yeah, very easy work. Right, you know. And uh, we had a lot of fun. And but she just couldn't get the love at radio that a lot of these programmers promised her. You uh-huh. know, aside from touring with a band, she's out there going on these radio tours and going around to these radio stations, working at yeah, doing these you know on air things and these lunchtime concerts with other songwriters and. They promise you the moon, but they don't have any real control over the playlist. They yeah. really can't control the playlist. Especially it's, these days. There's other people that control yeah. all that stuff. Focus yeah. groups and cons- consultants <laughs> and, you know. Investors. Other, other investors and all yeah. that kind of stuff. And, and country music is so male-dominated right now. Right. There's very few women that are in the top 10 or top 20, for that matter. Was she con- was she considering herself country in that yes. way? Cause, yeah, like, very country. Okay. And trying to bring it back maybe to a more central sort of country sound, you know, uh-huh. with that record. Yeah. And uh, anyway, we went and played a bunch. And then, um, you know, it's off and on. I'm playing other gigs in between. We go out, you know, just manage my calendar to yeah. work it all out that it, everything kind of worked out good, you right. know. And, um, and then she made another record. And yeah. The second record was uh, a little bit more... Um, contemporary sounding in some ways, yeah. more electric bass, more yeah. electric, more layers of of sort of uh, tapestries of rhythms and, and pads of stuff, you know. Produced that record. Uh, Vince Gill did both of those records. Oh, he did. Oh, wow. Okay. And um, again, she just did not get the love at the radio. And uh, so then 
you had to go out and do the touring again. Yeah. So you, you you start all over again. You know, promote right. the record. We're gonna go out and open. So we got uh, lined up with this band called Little Big Town, who are a four. They're yeah. a vocal group. You know, four voices, and they're fantastic. Yeah. And they're just really great people. Very contemporary in some ways, but they're very successful. They've had some big hits. Yeah, they're huge. Yeah, and. Uh, so we're getting ready to leave for 10 days to go to California, play seven shows with them, uh-huh. get a call. <laughs> they're canceling oh, for the next five weeks. Oh, my God. Because their singer, one of their singers blew his voice out. Oh, my God. Yeah. So immediately, 20 dates went away. Holy shit. My whole summer. You Brutal. Know? And, you know, you can't recover from that. Yeah. There's no way to recover. How do you... This you is like two or three years ago. Is that yeah. When, yeah? You can't book any gigs. Yeah, everything's man. already you know that short notice. Brutal. And uh, so I lost twenty gigs. Ugh. I had a couple little things that came in, just sort of stayed in town. Then we get to the end of the month. We're supposed to go back out and start all over again. Yeah. And they said we're going to need two more weeks. <laughs> really? So they had two more weeks to the cancellation. Oh my god! And then finally, this is all little big town. Yeah. Right. And okay. then finally, uh, we got back on track and. We went out and did the shows. There was some makeup dates. We did get to make okay. up a few of them. Yeah. Uh, one was at the Greek Theater yeah. in Los Angeles. You hadn't stormed out in anger at this point. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just had to roll. I mean, showbiz, yeah, you know, know. showbiz yeah. is. Uh, yeah. It's, you got to have a thick skin you know, for that. Exactly. Kind of shit. I mean, this yeah. stuff happens. Um, yeah. Things get canceled. Uh, you know, I always say you guys save your acorns because you never know what's going to happen. And of course, yeah. you never do. You're just like, you know, well, now what I'm going to do. <laughs> but um, we we did the makeup dates. We ended up touring with them. It was very successful. Went went over great. They yeah. really treated us very well in sort of the the show, like as part of the show. Right. And uh, we got in front of some great people. And then at the end of that, we finally went out and played dates on our own mm-hmm. as the as Ashley Monroe. Yeah. To me, it was very successful. Probably cost her a fortune because mm-hmm. there wasn't a lot of money involved, but we yep. played some great venues. And uh, But she was drawing a, a pretty decent audience. Yeah. Which she... we should have been doing. We should have been doing it months before. Right. Yeah. And we, we, we should have been doing it all along, yeah. actually, in and out of these other dates, right. playing our own dates. Ashley's getting ready to make her third record for Warner Brothers, like the third option record, which they yeah. renegotiated, and she's going to do it. And it's going to be produced by Dave Cobb oh, here in town. Wow, cool. So okay. Will that might on, be a good fit for her. We'll see. Will you play on that record? I don't know. Yeah. I don't expect to. Okay. Um, I could possibly. Yeah. I don't know that he's ever come to see us play. You know. Man. You um, but play on she's that. been writing for. We took all last year off. We went to Europe. I went to England and Ireland. Yeah. Last uh, March to play the big international. Oh, I thought I saw you guys playing around big international like... country music festival called C to C. Okay. And. She went over huge over there. People yeah, were bet. singing all of her songs. They really? knew the lyrics to her songs. Yeah. At the end of the tour, we went back to London and played just as a trio. Me and her, uh, Ashley and myself and uh, Eamon McLaughlin, her, our utility guy, plays yeah. guitar and violin and mandolin. We played Bush Hall and it was sold out, packed. Amazing. And the audience sang every song all night. It was yeah, just, it feels like it's right on the cusp for her, man. And Yeah, especially yeah. over there. Yeah. And she was just... After the show, she was so emotional about it. You know, yeah, just like, I, I can't, this is the greatest feeling I've had since I've done all of this. Like, right. so redeeming that right. these people know my music and and uh, we're not just uh, 20 minutes before some big band. Yeah. These people came to see and hear and sing along with my music, you know. Yeah. 
So hopefully we're going to build on that. And, and uh, so when you're in a situation like that where you're invested and you love the music, obviously, and it's like everything's sort of pointing in that direction, does it feel frustrating if you don't play on that record? Like, how do you not really? That as a because uh, just, as somebody that's how you roll. <laughs> well, as somebody who's been here in town a long time, that you have you don't do always that. get those calls, right? And sometimes that's just left to the studio pro, right? You know? Now I do a lot of session work, but I don't have a relationship with Dave Cobb, right? That that maybe. Some other bass players would or do. Right. I've never met the guy. I've never done yeah. a session for him. So I'm not I'm not even on his radar. Right. Now, if she inserted herself and said, you know, I like to use my band on some of this yeah. just because we've played together for four years and and we they, they embody what I do in a sound, I think he would be open to that because that's what he did with Chris Stapleton, you know, basically yeah. used his band yeah. and played with them and um so, but it, you know, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, you don't have you to know. get hung up on it. I don't get, I don't yeah. get emotional about that stuff. You yeah. know, I just do all I can. You know, yeah. it's, 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 it's a challenge. It's not for everybody. Yeah. Um, a lot of people just would like to have job, job security, and be a part of a band that makes, you know, and those jobs are far and few between for somebody like me that plays upright. You right. Know? I'm the only middle-aged, overweight, upright bass player in, in uh, contemporary country <laughs> music. <laughs> I don't really want to let go of that right now, you know. That's but I know my hat on, man. I know it's not sustainable, <laughs> and so I always say, "Well, I've always got bluegrass to fall back on," because that'll always be there, you know. They're yeah, not man. quite as judgmental on that kind of stuff yeah. as the as in the aesthetic department as the sort of commercial country music is. Well, thanks for talking to me today, man. I really appreciate it. Well, I hope we got something. We got something. All right, that was my conversation with Mike Bubb. And Mike, as I mentioned at the beginning, Mike brought his bass along, which was lying there, and we almost tripped over it on the way out and remembered it was there. So he grabbed it, I grabbed a guitar, and then this happened. Oh, yeah.
Okay, well, that was sure a lot of fun, and it was great to talk to Mike Bubb, as always. And I appreciate you guys listening and hanging out with us this afternoon or this evening or this morning, whatever it may be. I hope you dug it. Come back next week and we'll have another episode for you of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Music Makers and Soul Shakers is recorded at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Please visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. Thanks always to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for his help with research and to Michael Glusak for editing, music placement, and mixing. 